Welcome to Legal Lens, a DebtWire podcast on legal issues impacting restructuring and the distressed industry at large. My name's Andy Serby. Today, I'm, je- I'm glad to be joined by Nate Cortez of Mullis & Company. At the firm, he holds an executive director role and specializes in dispute advisory services. He's been in the game for over 15 years, advising companies and stakeholders across a broad range of industrials, uh, including facilitating access to legal funding for single cases and portfolios of claims. Nate, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Andy. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's get right into kind of how you got into financial advisory work and how you ended up at Mullis to start. Sure. So I actually started my career on the trading side, focusing on credit derivatives. I worked on the buy side first at a hedge fund called Blue Mountain, and then on the sell side at UBS in Stanford and New York. In the wake of the global financial crisis, that market was significantly impacted by the new regulatory regime and increasing capital requirements. So I decided to join the risk advisory group at Mollis which is a fairly unique practice among independent advisory firms and which, among others, evaluates complex assets, liabilities, portfolio, and advise on repositioning and divesting risk exposures. The team there includes former derivatives traders, structures, and quant from sell-side trading firms. So because of my background, this was a logical and smooth transition to the financial advisory space. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. So once you got there, I would like to move into kind of how'd you build up your practice, kind of your path inside the firm, and ultimately how we ended up with you working on the topic of today's podcast, which is litigation finance. So interestingly, my first assignment at Mollis involved providing litigation support to a large bank in connection with the dispute in the Southern District of New York. And we assisted from a financial perspective with discovery, depositions, valuation work, expert reports, expert testimony, mediation, trial, settlement negotiations. And advising throughout that process was a terrific experience. Later on, we advised a corporate client that had received a multi-billion dollar international arbitration award against a sovereign. And sometime after that, we acted as private placement agent for a new litigation funder. Ultimately, we realized that these situations and many others revolved around disputes and that there was a real demand for specialized and differentiated advice. And that's how we established the dispute advisory group at Mollis. Today, we help our clients along three vertical. One, helping them raise litigation funding or monetizing large claims. Two, advising on dispute resolution strategy. And three, providing litigation support. We're not investors. We don't invest in claims. We're not lawyers. We solely act in a financial advisory capacity. And disputes are often a natural byproduct of doing business. So there are a lot of them and that has kept us busy. Yeah, absolutely. And just for the sake of completion here... Can you give us a really quick overview of litigation finance and kind of how long the practice has been around? Simply put, litigation finance provides funding to a claimant or a law firm in exchange for a portion of the recovery from their lawsuits. And that model is premised on the fact that a claim, if you think about it, is an asset. The claimant or the law firm expect to receive something, although, of course, the quantum and timing of 
such recovery are often hard to predict with a high degree of certainty. So in that sense, litigation finance is just a form of asset-backed finance. Companies have historically been able to finance their receivables, properties, equipments, and now litigation finance allows them to also finance their legal asset, which can include claims, judgments, awards, settlements, or any other asset whose value might be driven by the outcome of a litigation or a regulatory process. So now in terms of how long it has been around, it originated in Australia in the 1990s with new legislation that permitted insolvency practitioners to enter into contracts financing lawsuits. And the rise was also fueled by class action, which came about in 1992 when courts recognized it as an efficient way of dealing with group claims. Together, that really created a new niche market, and that's how the litigation financing industry was born. Around that time, a wave of legislation aimed at improving access to justice precipitated the development of litigation finance in the UK. Notably, the parliament enacted laws to improve conditional fee arrangements that largely spared clients from necessary legal fee they could not afford. And later, in 2002, the England and Wales Court of Appeal reasoned that public policy was no longer opposed to alternative funding agreements outright, and therefore, public policy was not necessarily sufficient for striking such agreement. Now, since then, the litigation finance industry in the UK and in Australia has grown significantly. And following that success, litigation finance started taking roots in the US in the mid 2000s. What was previously mainly limited to personal injury cases saw a significant growth in commercial litigation funding. And you know, since the regulation in the US has largely been left to the states, but the trend toward normalizing that market continues. And today, the US represents the largest market for legal finance globally. Great, very succinct. Love it. One of the, I think that's one of the first legal practices I really followed on, followed on this podcast that we can say came out of Australia. That's not something you hear very often. That's right. We kind of already got into this a little bit with your previous answer. But from your perspective, it seems like there's been kind of an uptick in the acceptance and the use of litigation financing. And you already indicated that there kind of has been as it got more popular. Why do you think that that has happened? Like, what do you think is driving its heightened use and also the broad acceptance of it as a practice? I think people are increasingly realizing that litigation finance is a valuable tool. And you you can think about that across claimants, law firms, and funders or investors. First, you know, for claimants, or in other words, users of the capital, it can help with earnings. It can be accretive to earnings either because it offsets the cost of the legal expenses or because the proceeds from a claim monetization can flow through the income statement. It can also increase certainty and reduce litigation risk. For example, the risk that the claim recovers less than expected or that it recovers later than expected. And also claimants can accelerate or monetize a portion of one or multiple pending claims and convert it into cash. And so add that to the fact that litigation finance is often structured on a non-recourse basis, meaning that the claimant is only obligated to pay if the claim 
is successful. In other words, there is mm-hmm. no recourse to the company if the claim is not successful. So, you know, ultimately, it allows claimants to extract value from an asset that they typically don't get credit for. So, you know, that's for the claimant. Now, for law firms, it enables them to reduce risk and satisfied client demand for alternative fee arrangement. It can also open new business opportunities to litigation departments and provide a risk management tool for creative and contingent fee alternatives. And our third for funders, it's an uncorrelated asset class whose returns do not move with the broader financial market, which will be valuable for asset managers seeking diversification. And historically, the returns have been attractive. So, you know, in my view, the combination of these factors across claimants, law firms, and funders explains the current growth of the market. Moving kind of into the different angles from which litigation finance gets applied these days, we touched on this a little bit earlier when we described claims as uh, as assets, which I think is something absolutely nobody in the industry would quibble with. To what degree can we think of litigation finance as almost like an alternative form of asset disposition, uh, just another avenue other than like a straight up sale or capital infusion that we can just handle a monetizable asset or something to do with the company to bring money in? Yeah, so I think it's a very important point, Andy. And to take a step back, it might be helpful to distinguish two types of transaction that I'll refer to as a traditional litigation finance on the one hand and a monetization on the other hand. In reality, you know, the litigation finance market is bespoke and a range of structures can be considered. But you know, for our purposes, I think this is a reasonable model to use. Traditional litigation finance involves the financing of the ongoing legal fees and expenses associated with the pursuit of a case. The funder finances the litigation, but does not pay the company directly. The second construct, the monetization, is more akin to a sale of the claim or, you know, more technically, a sale of an interest in the proceeds from the claim. Back to the point that, you know, we discussed earlier, a claim is an asset and that asset can be sold or monetized in whole or in part like other corporates' assets. And depending on the size and type of the claim, that can result in a significant cash infusion into the company. And the cash is typically not restricted, can be used for working capital, R&D, M&A, capital distribution, or even to pay for defensive litigation. So it can be quite flexible and beneficial, which explains why monetization account for a significant portion of all transactions in the market today, although historically that market started with the traditional litigation finance framework. Now, when we talk about that, because this is, of course, DebtWire, we love talking about distressed assets. How does the approach or the fee structure generally change when we talk about litigation financing to a company that is not at risk of distress or not at risk of restructuring or bankruptcy versus a company that is restructuring or might be in Chapter 11? There are lots of similarities, but again, because we're on this podcast, I will flag a couple of differences to be aware of. So first, with respect to timing, I think the process in bankruptcy will probably move faster, either because there is a liquidity need that has to be addressed or because you know court-imposed deadlines are just harder to change than out-of-court. With respect to exclusivity, 
typically it would be more challenging to grant funders exclusivity in bankruptcy for this type of process. With that said, there are ways to mitigate that concern from the perspective of funders by offering certain protections like stocking horse protection under the right circumstances. Mm -hmm. There's also a point to be made around complexity. Bankruptcies involve you know, just more constituents, including the court, of course, but also creditor groups and other stakeholders who may have an impact on the process. And really, that will require the debtors and their advisors to carefully navigate the case dynamics. And then the last point I'll make on that end is that you know, with respect to transparency, unlike out-of-court processes, the approach in bankruptcy will generally be more transparent. And to some degree, that can be helpful to shed light on the robustness of these processes and the value that litigation finance can offer to debtors. Right. Because and I really like that you brought up the uh, the court as a party, because when we talk about restructuring or healthy on one side versus in bankruptcy on the other, one of the first things that's going to pop into most people's head is just that is just that there's a gatekeeper that's not typically present in the judge and the court, and they have the concerns for transparency and you have the U.S. trustee to consider. There's, it just feels like the scrutiny is a little bit higher. That's right, which is why you know it's important to run a process that is competitive, a process that is you know fair, and a process that is you know carefully designed for like these specific purposes. Mm -hmm. So again, when we're talking about debtors in Chapter Eleven or some sort of like formal bankruptcy proceeding, we're talking about companies that typically are you know resource light. So to what degree does the availability of litigation financing maybe increase their leverage against counterparties because they might because with the aid of a litigation finance partner they might be able to prosecute a claim to a greater extent than they might have without that meaning they might be less likely to settle with the counterparty because the lawsuit can be pushed farther Exactly. That's the David against Goliath analogy that you know you may hear oftentimes. Litigation finance there will likely expand the toolkit of the debtors and provide them with more flex. You know, by way of example, you may see the establishment of a litigation trust to pursue valuable claims and causes of actions. And again, make sure that the debtors are not forced into a suboptimal settlement. But actually I think it's interesting to see that the benefits are actually broader. The debtors could also monetize the claim, for example, through a 363 cell process, which will help restore liquidity and provide more runway during the restructuring process. So, you know, the benefit will be even broader than that. One thing I'll note is that while litigation can represent a meaningful source of value, litigation finance solutions are, you know, in my view, too often overlooked by debtors in bankruptcy, perhaps because these litigations are led to legacy exposures or because the claims are often independent from the company's broader business, or simply because the debtors and their advisors are not that familiar with the litigation finance market. But again, the fact is that there are tools in bankruptcy that can allow debtors to use litigation finance and that will typically increase the leverage. Well, I'm sure there'll be a higher awareness of it as a solution once we put the podcast episode out, right? I'm confident it will be. <laughs> <laughs> Does the analysis or the way that you approach the bespoke solution, to use your word, change at all uh, when we cross sectors or is it more or less or is it more on a case by case basis, not a sector basis? 
I think you're right. I think it's more on a case-by-case basis. I don't think it really changes depending on the sectors. Obviously, technically speaking, different sectors will involve different types of claims. You know, a construction Mm -hmm. dispute will be quite different from an IP dispute. And so specific aspect of the process might vary slightly. But as a general matter, I'd say that litigation finance is industry agnostic. Yeah. Moving kind of into the outlook for this, because we talked about how it's grown so far. Do you expect the growth to continue or do you think it's kind of going to stabilize? I think it will continue in particular after this podcast. But, you know, again, we've talked about some of these factors before. You know, we've talked about what explained the current uptick in the application of litigation finance. And I think that there are a range of benefits across claimants, law firms, and investors. I'm not going to go through them again, but my point is that I do believe that these are here to stay. So, you know, that's one, one piece of it. Two, the current macroeconomic backdrop is also conducive to a further expansion. Global economic uncertainty remains elevated. And for claimant, that means that it is important to have the ability to enter into financing arrangements that are flexible, to diversify their funding sources, including through non-debt solution, and also to optimize their assets on or off balance sheets. Again, the point here being that Oftentimes, litigation claims are assigned no value Mm -hmm. on balance sheet for claimant. Now, on the other side of the litigation finance trade, in the current environment, capital providers have shown an increasing preference to pursue uncorrelated strategies and to structures in whole or in part funding solutions based on asset value. So, you know, combined, these factors will likely act as tailwinds to the market. And finally, when you think about the total addressable market, this is just massive. And I think it's set to continue to grow. Many corporates today are still in the early stage of exploring litigation finance solution and their conversion to users of litigation finance, I think is expected to fuel the next phase of growth for the space. And I'll just add one last point, Andy, which is these corporates may also have or be involved in more litigation, more dispute, which really is the commodity for this market. Litigation mm-hmm. is often counter-cyclical, and recent research indicated that nearly 75% of in-house counsel expect an increase in litigation in the next two years. So I do anticipate that to be a compounding factor. Sure. And uh, just to kind of put a nice bookend on it here, we'll condense a couple of questions. But given this is still kind of like a newer emerging solution, how do you go about having conversations with corporates and law firms or clients about this as an option? And how do you decide that litigation finance is the right choice for someone who's coming to you looking at it? The answer to the first question here naturally will depend on their level of familiarity with litigation finance and their experience. Obviously, for corporates and law firms that are already familiar with the product, you know, the conversation are relatively straightforward. They appreciate the value of litigation finance and already understand how to use it and benefit from it. Now, for those who are less familiar, we generally try to combine theory and practice. With respect to theory, you know, we'll try to help them understand how litigation finance can improve how they approach and manage their litigation. We'll provide them with a detailed overview of the space. 
What's legal finance? What are the structures? What are the pros and cons? What does the process look like? Candidly, a lot of the theme that you and I covered today, you know, who are the main investors? Hmm. What have their peers done in the space? And we want to make sure that we address all their questions. And that might include, among others, debunking certain myths that they may have heard about the space. So that's for theory. Now, for practice, because the Mollis Dispute Advisory Group has been specializing in advising on litigation finance for years and has an extensive coverage of the investor universe, we can perform a detailed market-based assessment of the opportunity early on. And that will be critical to give corporates and law firm clarity on what can be done and allow them to make an informed decision as to the best course of action. Overall, you know, what I'd say is that what we have found is that this conversation and we've been having a lot of them will often result in corporates and law firm understanding why litigation finance has become a key component of the dispute market globally, how it could help them to unlock value from their legal asset as well, and why it should be a tool in their toolbox. And the level of engagement that we've seen has been very positive, which in my view, bodes well for the future of this market. Now, Andy, I think your other question was about how to decide if it's a good option or not for a client. And Mm -hmm. there, we'll work with the client first to conduct a review of their legal assets and look at the types of matters, the merits, the counsel, jurisdiction, budget, damages, funding needed, and just to see if there is enough information for prospective funders to evaluate the situation. Mm -hmm. Once that review is complete, we'll assess the market interest in such asset and in particular, what indicative pricing might look like, what the structure might look like, and that will allow us to test our assumption and get live feedback. And finally, once these steps are done, we can determine whether there is a viable path for the debtors to generate incremental value given the facts and, and circumstances. The last point I'll make is, you know, a no can sometimes just be a not yet, i.e. in certain situations that will not be workable. But what we've seen is if the litigant has, for example, not yet engaged counsel appropriate to their needs, a funder may want to revisit the situation when a strong law firm is in place. Mm-hmm. Or if the matter is at too early a stage to warrant an investment or the early risks are too high, the firm may want to wait until after motion to dismiss or other critical issue are resolved mm-hmm. before moving forward. So, you know, sometimes more time is just needed, which is why it can be important to reevaluate the situation as the case progresses. As is so often the case when we talk about the law and the courts and restructuring as a whole, the answer is it depends. Of the facts and circumstances, that's the right answer, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, Nate, it's been really great talking to you today. Thanks for taking the time to share your thoughts. Uh, We really appreciate it. Andy, thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. And thank you to our listeners for checking out this episode of Legal Lens. As always, you can subscribe or download every episode via Spotify or Apple and find thousands of articles with insights, research, and more from our team at DebtWire.com. We'll see you next time.